This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. He describes himself as his Instagram bio as a Jesus follower, missionary, artist, author, humanitarian, and activist. But right now, Sean Foyt may be best known as a volunteer Bethel worship leader who has spent his summer leading around two dozen outdoor worship concerts, which have not always been welcome in the cities that he's visited. Religion News Service described Foyt's events as, quote, a mix of Christian concert, healing service, guerrilla street theater, and spectator mosh pit. In a recent trip to Seattle, the city denied Foyt a permit for his concert and shut down Gasworks Park, where he'd intended to hold his event. We want to come and bless the city. We've not had one COVID case tracked back to our concerts. This is about blatant discrimination against Christians. They're not doing this with other demonstrators, Foyt told reporters before he and his fellow musicians began a, quote, protest concert near the park. As the concert began, he informed his audience, Politicians can write press releases. They can make up threats. They can shut down parks. They can put up fences. But they can't stop the Church of Christ from worshiping the one true God. We're here as citizens of America and citizens of the kingdom of God, and we will not be silent. While city governments have battled with him over COVID-19 regulations, Foyt's appearance in cities like Minneapolis and Kenosha, where significant protests have followed high-profile police shootings, have provoked wariness from local leaders. Richard Coleman, a Minneapolis pastor and nonprofit leader, told Slate, quote, the sense that the local folks have is, where were you when we were dealing with the culture that allowed the police to feel so free that they could engage in murder without interruption? Where are you preaching to people to undo their own racism and bias? We wanted to better understand what has spurred Sean Foyt's evangelism and also the larger historical context of Christian musicians and charismatic leaders that he is a part of. You are listening to Quick to Listen, where we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I am Morgan Lee, Global Media Manager at Christianity Today. And I'm Ted Olson, Editorial Director at Christianity Today. All right, there is a lot happening in this story about Sean Foyt Ted, but I would really just like to hear, you know, when you've been reading articles about him this summer, what type of reaction have you had to them? Yeah, it's hard for me to know kind of where to place him because, you know, obviously there have been people like this for years and years in our movement. And, you know, a lot of times when you, I've gone to cover a whole lot of major news events for Christianity Today. And there are often, you know, folks there doing makeshift worship services, mostly, you know, music of some of some kind. I've visited the National Mall and have popped into David's tent, which is kind of an interesting 24-7, you know, prayer and worship music phenomenon that's been going on in the National Mall since it started in 2012, but I think it's been going nonstop since 2015 or something like that. They're still there, even even amid the uh, pandemic. They've only stopped a couple times, once for Hurricane Sandy, once for the Snowzilla. And the 24-7 prayer movement that you could see on, on YouTube and all various places, I find it interesting. I find it encouraging in some ways, but as an Anglican, not quite my church family, but it is my Christian family. So I, I'm like, all right, yeah, that's cool. The thing about Foyt is, no, he's also been this political candidate. He makes a lot of political statements. He has a political arm. He has a kind of a separate ministry that's political. I'm always wondering like, all right, what's the mix of politics and religion here? Is this kind of a let's worship Jesus thing? Is this a get out the vote thing? How do those things interplay? So hopefully we'll get into some of that in our conversation. But man, people excited about singing music and praising Jesus, generally something I'm pretty excited about. On Sunday, it was a beautiful day here in Chicago. We do church Saturday night. And, you know, I just I just popped out in my backyard and did played through the Methodist hymnal I've got here on on my shelf. And it's awesome. I love doing that. It's just, I love joining with other people. And one of the things that really frustrates me about COVID tide, this COVID season, is that I can't be parts of large singing congregations. So I get the desire to do that uh, in this kind of yes. context. How about, how about you? How about you, Morgan? So 
I guess one of my questions with the story is if this guy is not connected to Bethel, is this a big story? I say that because Bethel seems to occupy an enormously important space in our current worship culture movement. I go to two churches, or I did go to two churches for a long time that I would say Bethel was not among the stuff that we sang, but I would learn about (laughs) different Bethel songs actually through working at CT and how we would cover them. And they always seemed to provoke a big reaction when we would talk about the theology behind these songs and what was making them popular and different streaming milestones that they had hit. I guess I've just been kind of interested about what Bethel is. We also, I think, had this as our cover story maybe four or five years ago, an inside look at it. And I've always felt a little bit removed from it, aside from knowing that it's this big phenomena. So with someone like Sean Foyt, I actually can't really tell how much of this is like a big deal or not. In this particular event that he did in Seattle, which we mentioned above, I think they said there were maybe 800 or 900 people there. Is that a lot? (laughs) Is that a little? It's hard for me to know. Obviously, numbers like that can feel really big in a situation like COVID where people are obviously strongly discouraged from attending things like this. Although it was interesting that Sean started to use the language of protest and saying like, well, if we do this as a protest, then it's going to be fine because those have obviously been a huge way where people have gathered in large groups together this summer. But I am really interested if this is something that is supposed to be newsworthy or not, or if it's really this Bethel connection that is making it something that we're talking about on the show today. So I hope we get into that. Who's our guest? Our guest is Leah Payne. She has been on the show before, and we're happy to have her back. She is Associate Professor of Theology at George Fox University and Portland Seminary. Leah is the author of Gender and Pentecostal Revivalism, which is the reason we had her on the show last time. And she is the author of a forthcoming book on political theology in the charismatic movement and contemporary Christian music perfect fit for today. She's also the co-host of the Weird Religion podcast, and we know, uh, since you're listening to this, that you are a podcast fan. So, Weird Religion is in your pods, and you should subscribe. Leah, welcome back to Quick to Listen. Thank you so much. I am delighted to be speaking with you all today. Thanks for having me. All right, Leah, let us start with the obvious question. Who is Sean Foyt? And tell us a little bit about the tradition that he is from. Well, Morgan, I agree with your take that In order to understand Sean Foyt, you really have to understand the church that he comes from. And of course, I'm a historian, so I'm going to think about it and frame it in historical terms. But I think in order to understand Sean, you need to understand Bethel Church. And then in order to understand Bethel, you need to understand Bill Johnson, the influential senior pastor there. And in order to understand him, You have to think about the roots of that church, which they're historically an Assemblies of God church. Understanding the Assemblies of God, I think Sean makes a lot of sense in that frame because the Assemblies of God is a part of the Pentecostal movement. And Pentecostalism is like this huge category. It's very hard to define. But the Assemblies of God, um, it's one of the biggest, most powerful denominations um, in that Pentecostal umbrella. They're a historically white denomination, and they're historically more likely to participate in conservative evangelical political action, like scholars might call it the religious right. But um, the Assemblies of God has a long history of being involved in political action. I like to study the assemblies because they're really, if you want to know what they they think about things, they always will make a pronouncement about it. So if you're like, what was the assemblies of God thinking about in the 1970s? They were thinking about divorce because they had pronouncement about it, or they were thinking about gambling in the 40s, or they're thinking about human sexuality. They're also concerned about religious liberty. So I think like understanding Sean Point as a part of a church that has ties to the Assemblies of God. He makes a lot of sense in that. Also, it's a West Coast charismatic church. And West Coast charisma is its very own distinct kind of thing. Sean Foyt has himself made connections between what he's doing and the Jesus movement, which was a revival movement in the 1960s and 1970s that created a ton of really influential music. So some of my favorite music that I was raised with, actually, Keith Green, Larry Norman, Second Chapter of Acts, those kind of musicians came out of a charismatic revival. It largely held on like beaches in Southern California and in kind of makeshift urban concerts. When I see him doing that, I see him evoking that kind of expression. And really, I mean, the Jesus movement 
created music that was super influential in American evangelicalism. Bethel is doing the same today, as you mentioned. So I totally agree that if we want to understand him, he's best understood coming out of that church and all the things that he's doing. I think he's kind of like coming around at a particular time where people have a lot of interest and energy in it, but this kind of stuff has been going on for a long time. Yeah, it does strike me that some of those early, you know, Jesus people artists that you bring up, they were in some ways more political than CCM kind of became over the 80s and, and 90s. You know, the Jesus people, they were as likely to sing about poverty policies in some ways. Barry Norman, of course, spoke at length at his concerts about, you know, everything under the sun and had, you know, songs about environmental degradation and all those kinds of things. Yeah, yeah. Barry Maguire, well, before he became a Christian, he had a, a famous protest song, Eve of Destruction, and he re-recorded it when he was a CCM artist uh, or contemporary Christian music artist later in his career. So absolutely, they were engaged people. You know, a lot of it of what we sometimes call politics or political statements, a lot of times they're just like social commentary. And so I am curious about the difference between kind of speaking out on divorce or speaking out on actual specific public policies, or even more so elections. It does seem like there was a difference between the 70s, early Jesus music commentaries about behavior in some ways, I guess, and what I might see from some folks today talking about politics, and even some comments from Foyt that would be more in the election mode. Is that fair to say that, like, we're talking about a, a slightly different, or when you say like the AG didn't get involved in politics, like did the AG, the Assemblies of God make commentary about specific elections and specific legislation, or were they more talking about social issues? It's a big movement. So you find instances of both of those things. I agree that Boyd and the way he talks about things, I, I think one of the things that's distinct about it is the people who are listening in a way, because for a long time, the types of charismatic songwriters and singers, but the folks of, of his ilk, if you will, Bethel, the church is quite charismatic. There's a lot of stuff that would seem, I think, fringe to people from the outside. I grew up in the charismatic tradition. So if you grow up in it, it seems totally normal. You don't know that people like weeping and speaking in tongues and prophesying is, is strange until you're <laughs> told that it's strange. So I think there was a time when that crew, if they were speaking about political things, not that many people were listening. To me, what's distinct about what's happening right now is that Foyt and many other worship leaders in his network have been invited to the White House. They've been courted, I think, by faith outreach people in the current administration. And, and that feels new because it's not new, certainly, for politicians to reach out to members of whatever influential faith community. I think it stri this moment strikes me as this, it's the charismatics turn kind of, because, you know, they're the more, tr what people would think of as respectable denominations were the ones that got courted before. You want a really nice, you know, intellectual Presbyterian and a Baptist. This, this to me seems new. You know, there's instances of charismatics and Pentecostals being deeply concerned about the world, you know, wanting to make statements of, about, you know, some particular, it could be like a cultural thing like divorce, but it could also be, I mean, something like divorce is tied to particular legislation, or it could be something like the common political talking points would be like abortion, things like religious liberty. The people have cared about that. I'm curious about who's listening. I think it's a much bigger stage for these types of people than it has been in the past. I want to go back to Foyt for a second. At the beginning, you know, we identified him as a volunteer worship leader. But correct me if I'm wrong, Leah, as the summer has gone on, hasn't Bethel in some ways distanced itself a little bit from him? I was actually looking into that. I have a friend who spent time at that school and I was just messaging them beforehand saying like, well, what's the story here? And I couldn't get a lot of details. So I don't know, you know, what the official relationship is between them. I do know that Bethel has a collective of worship ministers who kind of are in and out and sometimes more closely related to the church than at other times. So I, to be honest, I don't know what his current status is with them. I've got a statement here that Bethel sent to the Washington Post. Here's what it says. On Foyt's mission is to, quote, bring worship, prayer, healing, and unity into a landscape of division, violence, and unrest through the power and presence of Jesus. We love this vision and celebrate him for leading from his convictions. So that statement is 
both celebratory and I would say distancing a little bit. There's a lot to read in between the lines from that and say, hey, sounds good to us, but there's not a yes, he's one of us. So that's kind of an interesting mode. They didn't say he is our friend and, you know, something like that. So that was very, they're threading a needle there for sure. They are. They are. <laughs> Well, let's also talk a little bit about how Christians on the ground in many of these cities that Voight has visited to have responded to his concert slash evangelism sessions. Has Voight found any surprising allies? Who are some of the folks that have not been so thrilled to have him in their cities? It's funny. He came to the city that's, I live right on the outskirts of it. He came to Portland and Portland, Oregon has been in the news a lot lately for a lot of reasons. I talked to a few pastors who were aware of it, who were maybe in some of those same networks. And I think many were, to be totally honest, many pastors in the Portland area are just exhausted because it's been months and months of the pandemic and there's been no relief from that. And then months and months of anti-racist protests, and then weeks of counter-protests and violence. Then they've been under the microscope nationally because Portland is one of the president's, I guess, lesser favorite cities. And so I think the pastors, some were enthusiastic about it and really excited for the opportunity. I think what you all said, they were just excited to get outside and be with people because it's been a lonely time for the whole world, really. And then others were, did I think they were concerned that they felt like this kind of gathering didn't really read the room of what was going on in Portland. <laughs> Hard to know unless you're here, all the ins and outs of what's been happening. And then there were others who were just playing against it. An evangelical leader in the area posted a sign with Amos away with your noisy hymns of praise. I will not listen to the music of your harps, which I read it aloud to my spouse. And he said, whoa, it went full Keith Green on that one. So there were some who, you know, it was a broad spectrum of responses. I think that there are certain folks who are just really excited. Others thought it was terrible. You know, kind of what you would expect with someone who's, I think, you know, him using it, the language of protest means he's okay with it being something that divides people in terms of very much for or against. Yeah, I am interested in getting into that a little bit because I'm trying to figure out how much of this he is tying these concerts or whatever you call them, events, to the post-George Floyd moment. How much of this is racially focused and how much of it is like just going where the cameras are or going where, and I, that's probably, that sounds pejorative. I, I mean that in the sense that, you know, I mean, I think itinerant evangelists have done that all through Christian history is kind of go where, you know, go where the attention is already, go where the people are already and go where they see, you know, upheaval and, you know, discussion and, and questions about big issues. Henry evangelists have gone to those kinds of places and going way, way, way back. I don't mean in a pejorative sense, but, you know, I think I am curious about how much of his commentary and how much of his kind of conversation, how much of his music is really focused on racial justice, racial reconciliation, and how much of it is just like, there are people here there's a big conversation going on, and Jesus needs to be foremost in that conversation. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I, I laughed when you said that going where the, the camera is because my first book, I wrote a lot about Amy Semple McPherson, which is, who is the founder of the, the Foursquare Church and was a relentless and unashamed self-promoter. Exactly what you just said. She was a, a classic revivalist who, you know, she kind of predated film world, there would be no camera that would be too far and too outrageous for her to try and occupy in order to talk to people about Jesus. So I think that you're super right. There's a kind of traditional revivalist bent where it's like, there's no such thing as bad publicity. I'm going to get out there and get a particular message. And I'll use the word opportunist, not in a neutral a phrase, a way as I can. I think he's has seen a, a kind of opportunity. As a person, I mean, he he ran for a congressional seat in California on a very conservative platform. I interpret his activism side, the kind of religious liberty piece that he brings as being part of a his own political vision. And we'll see where he goes with that. It may not be public office. It may be, this is kind of a, a non-public office way of doing that. I'm really interested to see where he goes. Will he stay with the revivalist music scene? Will he dip his toes back in politics? I'm fascinated. 
I haven't heard much of his music, to be honest with you. And not to say that I, I, I listen to a lot of worship music. I may have listened to some of his worship music. I just tend not to listen to a whot of Bethel music, more for less for the lyrical content and more just because I, I like the more folksy stuff than the anthemic big crowd type worship music. But I am curious, like, have you checked out any of his lyrics? I mean, are his lyrics particularly noteworthy or are they kind of your standard Hillsong, Bethel, giant stadium worship song about Jesus be glorified? I actually don't know a lot of his, I don't know that he has any huge hits in the mix. In fact, I was looking at it in preparation for today and I don't actually, I, I, I had made a list. I, I don't know that he is the author of any like big ones, but the ones that I saw, they were very much in line with the Bethel mystical that some of their, the, the one that comes to mind as the biggest hit, how he loves kind of interested in the aesthetic value of God, like the beauty of God and a mystical connection with God. I don't know that he, watch, I'm going to be totally wrong. He wrote some huge song. I was looking at it today and I couldn't find any that he authored that were, you know, like a big hit that, that anyone would recognize, not like a, a Carrie Job song or something like that. Yeah, I'm looking at Spotify right now just to see. And, uh, you know, I mean, you know, there's a there's some pretty high play count in terms of his songs. Like There Is A Name has four million plays, which, you know, it's not that's not nothing on Spotify. Like A Fire got about three million plays. So, you know, I don't know. Again, a lot of those are, I don't know if he, he wrote those or if, or if he's just singing. That's the weird thing about worship music. Uh, oh, is that this person's song? Or is that this person? Well, everyone everyone does everybody's songs. But, you know, that's, that's how it always has been in worship music. Yeah, I could. I couldn't find any high charting ones on CCLI, which is like the congregational singing tracking, right. like royalties one. So, I mean, I could be wrong. If there's a if there's a Sean Foyt super fan listening right now, they're probably hating me. They'll they'll, they'll let me know. I'm sure. Email me. <laughs> In our broken world, it can be hard to see how Jesus is at work making all things new. That's why every day. CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear through redemptive storytelling and global reporting. Whether it's a pastor in Brazil who uses CT in Portuguese to lead his ministry, or a young believer who wants to think biblically about our culture, CT comes alongside believers to illuminate what it looks like to follow Jesus in today's world. Jesus is transforming his world. CT is equipping his church. Give a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com slash equip. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying, and sirens go off, and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, Every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But hey, all my friends that were here were murdered. Here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. So I wanted to just kind of talk a little bit about some of these worship personalities. And we mentioned Carrie Job. She's definitely at least someone who is not super immersed in this world, the name that I recognize the most. And I was definitely following that story last year about when she ended up going to the White House. And I thought I would just kind of read some of the quotes that she and her husband made after they visited last year. She had said, I'm so thankful to be part of this today and see what God's doing in our White House. And then her husband, Cody Carnes, 
Warren said, we've gotten to worship. We've gotten to pray for the president. I've been so encouraged today because there's so many good things happening out of this house. So many good things for the faith community. I know that there were some people who are fans of their music that were surprised to see them visiting the White House and see them coming away with these really positive remarks. But my question for you, Leah, is is anything that they said, I guess, surprising or the fact that they went to the White House surprising? Yeah. Have we seen something like this from other worship leaders in other eras? I nerd out on this stuff. Obviously, I'm a professional nerd. And so I wasn't surprised to see that because I knew that the Trump administration had been very deliberately reaching out to charismatic and Pentecostal celebrities in particular. So that is part of a much longer relationship that the president has had. Um, Probably the most famous kind of infamous one who he has a relationship with is Paula White. She's a pretty well-known televangelist. But he has, in the months leading up to his election, he went to some pretty large charismatic congregations. I think that if you know anything about charismatic or Pentecostal worship, you know that music is one of the most powerful things. I mean, I, I would argue that music has sacramental value for charismatic and Pentecostal worshipers. So a lot of my friends, if they come from like the, the mainline tradition, may think, why is this a big deal that a worship leader is engaged? I mean, it's like 10 minutes out of our service or something like that. But a Pentecostal or charismatic worship service, it could be mostly music. And worship leaders have a tremendous amount of standing in charismatic and Pentecostal services. And then they also have a tremendous amount of influence in, in wider evangelical circles. So I wasn't surprised to see that. And the Trump administration has been very solicitous and has invested in things that charismatic, especially like historically white charismatic and Pentecostal churches really care about a focus on Israel, religious liberty, anti-abortions. That to me actually made a lot of sense. And, And there's a long history of evangelical and charismatic worship or music type people being involved to a certain degree in politics. I mean, probably the most famous example of that was Michael W. Smith singing at the Republican National Convention, I think in 2004. It's not unprecedented at all. And I think that the kind maybe is a little new. Like, you know, the Bethel School of Ministry or school, I think it's School of Supernatural Ministry is like on the edge of what most people would think of as traditional evangelicalism. Like they do some stuff that's pretty out there by many people's standards. So it's unusual to see somebody who's from that crew, but not if you look at the way that the administration has courted them. Yeah, I wasn't surprised. It's interesting to me, the assumption most people have is that worship is is the least political thing (laughs) that the church does because we think of it in terms of like the music before the real service begins or or whatever, you know, we we kind of hang worship down to kind of intro music or outro music, or we think that worship is music. That is a little bit crazy. I mean, historically speaking, theologically speaking, worship is extremely political. Worship is at its root very much political. Think about the early church, you know, what, what if you talk to them about what worship is, the declaration of Jesus as Lord, the declaration of we are people under under the worship of Jesus. And that's a very political statement. The discussion of what worship is, would have, they would have very much framed that in terms of political and ethical kinds of discussions and not so much in terms of music or even, or even the liturgical life of the church. They would have really seen it as a creation of a community, of a, pol- of a polis, of a people. Worship is a declaration of who God is and who he wants his people to be in that, in that framework. So for me, it's, it's really interesting just how apolitical people is assume that worship is, but there's also this kind of unintended consequences, right? That, you know, Christianity Day, I've mentioned this before, Christianity Day was formed out of this desire that Carl Henry and other people had to say, hey, wake up, you know, uh, fundamentalists and evangelicals, your faith has uh, social implications. And then when that kind of gave rise to more of the religious right and more of a fundamentalist take on politics, uh, people like Carl Henry were (laughs) very annoyed by that. You know, I think a similar thing has happened with some worship. There's been a lot of worship people out there, leaders saying, you know, worship Worship has implications. Worship has worship is a kind of a political and a community statement about the way things should be. Sometimes when people grab onto that and put it in the service of certain kind of political parties and earthly politics, kingdoms of this world, I guess, some of the very people who are saying worship is political are like, that's not what we meant by that. So yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see that play out in worship in the same way that it has uh, happened in other places like uh, like the other worlds that Christianity also kind of occupies. 
Well, I 1000% agree with you. If, if you can go more than, than 100%, I think in our, the cultural soup that we all live in, there tends to be this idea that there, because we have a disestablished relationship between the church and the state, that there's like a distinct, you know, church realm and then a distinct state realm. And of course, that's, it's never has been or never will be like that. You know, there's always blurry lines between those. The idea that music maybe specifically or that the whole the entire worship service would somehow be divorced from our public life. Well, I'll just say it never has been that way. There may be a time that it will be like that in the future, but for all the reasons that you said, it's it's never been that way. I found this great quote a while back when I was doing research about temperance workers who were wanting to use hymns to advance the cause of the anti-saloon league or advance the cause of outlawing the production and sale of alcohol. And they said music was the key to doing that because they said it was a sentiment maker. It was magical. You know, it could like create within people the emotional logic that they needed to overcome their objections to something. And I think that's something revivalists have been especially good at. They understand that music moves people, any and all kinds of music, and harnessed in any particular direction. So I, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> yeah, that uh, temperance uh, hymnal, that you can actually find that on Google Books and uh, I think Hymnary. Oh, they're uh, great. Calvin, yeah, it has them. And yeah, reading some of those reading some of those temperance hymns, you're like, wow, they, they really laid it on thick in some of these... <laughs> It's very, it's very on the nose. It's not a subtle thing. It's like, you know, alcohol is a devil's brew. You know, it's just very, (laughs) it's not subtle. There's reasons we don't still sing them. You're like, these are not hymns designed to pass the, you know, stand the test of time. They are designed to, you know, get out the boat. That is is for sure. It worked. It worked. But, you know, let's, let's, let's stay here for a second because I am wondering what what is it? Is it just is it just my own politics? What is it where I see you know the the importance that spirituals and and spiritual songs and hymns played in things like the civil rights movement? And I'm like, man, yeah, right on. And you know, I've got a number of Spotify playlists of you know songs from from that era and recordings from that era where I just, oh man, they're so great. But I see kind of enthusiastic church worship songs, you know, my uh, Chris Tomlins or your, you know, David Crowder hits, you know, being used in services that are also laden with, you know, anti-mask sentiments. We haven't gotten into that yet. Boy, it just bugs me so much. And I'm like, that just is the, you know, don't use songs to push your politics. You know, I'm willing to admit that may just be a factor of my, of my politics, but I do wonder, it's a thin line, it often is, between making Christ central we talk about politics and taking the name of God in vain when we when we talk about politics and using him to kind of baptize the positions that we take. It doesn't bother me as much on civil rights stuff as it does for the anti-mask stuff, but that's something that I wrestle with. I, I'm curious about your thoughts on that. Oh, wow. I think about, if, you, if we could call it the extraordinary responsibility that people who have these positions of power, real power, have. And I think about how they'll be remembered over time because I, you know, history, I think, uh, you know, sometimes we need a little bit of distance from what's happening to see with what I think of as moral clarity, because there's very few folks who would argue with you about those extraordinary songs of the civil rights movement. I tend to think that the songs that are being appropriated for masks won't really stand up over time for a lot of different reasons. You know, I probably have the same response that you do, because I think that the moral imperative or the moral value is is not the same (laughs) between what's happening. And that's been one thing that's been interesting to me. And I'd love to hear y'all's thoughts about this is that this man, uh, Sean Foyt, essentially adopting a, a position that it really heightens the religious liberty angle of his ministry. I don't know. I mean, it, it'll be it'll be interesting to see how that's remembered. One of the things that revivalists are really good at as is framing themselves as being like, this is the moment, this is the now, you know, like what we're doing here is the most important thing anyone's ever done. I think he'll just be a little bit more of a blip on this bigger conversation of what's happening. But I don't know. What do you all think? Is is what's happening right now 
and what he's participating in. Is it is it a big deal or a little deal? I think that's what I was trying to get to at the beginning of this conversation is about how how significant is this actually? I will say that one of the reasons I think that we are paying attention to this and even devoting a podcast to us is because the experience that he is creating, that Voight is creating is very visceral. That is something that at least my church-going experience this year has been very devoid of. I normally think of places like Hillsong and Bethel as being places that you can feel a lot. I've actually found church this year to be pretty intellectual and heady, especially when it's consumed over Zoom. Even some of the ways that my church has tried to do small groups outside this summer, especially when we haven't had music. And I think that music is probably the reason why there is a little bit more contentiousness about this, <laughs> given what we know about how COVID spreads and people singing and so forth. I do think that there's something about what he is creating about this entire spectacle that speaks to a lot of what we are missing about people being together, about concerts in general, about live music, about feeling emotionally high from your spiritual, ex- or sorry, spiritually high from this worship experience that you encountered. So, I think that is part of the reason that we're all paying attention to that. I don't know if Sean Foyt will be the person that we're always looking to, but I do think it will be something that we look back on as far as like either something that we missed because we didn't have that as part of church or our worship experience, especially for those of us who are a little bit more accustomed to having that as part of a weekly Sunday routine, or it will also be something that we kind of see as almost you know, one of these like backfirings to how people were trying to handle the pandemic. But I do think the pandemic really informs how we look at this. Yeah, for me, I, I often wrestle with God's judgment on taking his name in vain, that is using him for our own purposes, somewhat cynically at times. And also God's promise that his, you know, that his word does not return void and the ways in which when his word goes forth that it can bear fruit even when people use it wrongly. And so I, this is one of my long wrestles at Christianity Today is seeing good fruit come from bad actors. That's many, many podcasts we can go into detail on that. But it's one of my biggest frustrations with God. That, and I'm not, again, I want to back up and say, I'm not saying that Sean Foyt is a bad act. He does seem to be pretty anti-mask and I'm no fan of that. Uh, everything else, I'm, in terms of my own ideas, are still out. Actual bad actors who... I think a lot of times are, you know, charlatans or grifters trying to trick Christians into stuff. I've seen God work through those folks. God and I are going to have a talk about that someday because I, I don't get it. I also, I'm also, also, that's one of the reasons why I'm like, hey, you know, there's lots of incidents in, in, in scripture as well where you see people. Well, that's the thing, right? You'd see incidents in scripture where people are proclaiming truth. Paul or Jesus tells them to shut up. And there's other times where Jesus says, eh, you know, don't worry about it. They're <laughs> they're saying truth and and uh, God, will, God will work with that. I'm like, I don't know. You know, that's that's uh, that's one of the frustrations of, of being at Christianity today. Y'all have a very difficult job because, yeah, there's so many conversations going on right now about, you know, who Christians are, especially like who Christians are in this nation, where the future of the country is going, what the responsibility is of Christians and especially church leaders. I mean, one of my good friends, her her name's Dr. Erica Ramirez. She and I, we've done a lot of work together trying to understand, you know, how Pentecostals and Charismatics are handling those and wrestling with those questions. So people like Sean Foyt and many others, in fact, a lot of the research I was just talking about today, she and I did together. And We're also interested in how pastors will think about and preach really what is the future of our life altogether. I see Christianity today as being a central partner in that conversation. There's a lot of tensions and and divisions. Y'all have your work cut out for you. (laughs) Yeah, thanks for saying that. It can be tricky. It's good work, though. I think it's good work to do. So I had mentioned a couple minutes ago all of this spectacle that seems to accompany Hoyt when he's traveling around. That is obviously, I think, again, another reason that this might be seen as something that is newsworthy. But how common, Leah, are you... Yeah, How common has it been for evangelists and preachers to secure local partnerships on the ground before they show up in places and to have everything super organized and work with cities and get permits and all that type of stuff before they end up with their concert or their festival or whatever? And how commonplace is it just for things to be a little bit more ad hoc? I think you see both, really. And some of it has to do with the personality of the person who's either ministering through preaching or song. But traditionally, revivalists, going all the way back to 
people like George Whitfield. And there were some who would just go outside and stand on a stump and start preaching and whoever would be there. And then there were other folks who'd be a lot more organized about it. I'm thinking of somebody like Charles Finney, Billy Graham, like those, the the types that were, had kind of a a well-organized operation that was going on with them. So I think some of it has to do with just the the orientation of the person. Uh, The person I brought up earlier, Amy Semple McPherson, was a much more, initially more of an ad hoc person, but then she had some organizers who worked with her. Yeah, I mean, I think that we can expect, I think if if he gains any steam with this movement, I saw on his Instagram page that he's been fundraising. I wouldn't be surprised if we see a much more highly organized method going forward, but we'll see. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see if he does or not. I, I would imagine, I mean, I don't, I wasn't there at the concert for a lot of the same mask reasons that you brought up, Ted, but I would imagine, you know, just the kind of the type of music that they do requires some setup. So there, it wasn't just him in a, in a guitar. <laughs> There's a decent amount of technology involved, I'm sure, in making all of this happen and making sure that the music actually sounds good. And the photos too, they got some amazing photos. So someone was, there, there was a plan there somewhere. I don't know, you know, if it was super organized, but they were organized enough to be able to promote it. You know, we could have, we could have gone there and with this whole podcast, but there is this very Instagram approach to this in the same way that you saw, you know, folks like Billy Graham really have an innate sense of how to use television or people before Graham, how to use stage or how to use radio. And yeah, a number of people have used the internet well, but Voight seems to get Instagram, how to how to create a crowd around kind of Insta language in a way that is fairly remarkable. And that's that's kind of been a long, well, let, I, let me hit that really quick. Do you think that the energy on kind of that innate knowing how to use these media for evangelistic purposes, or at least for religious gathering purposes, uh, like Voight's, you think that's shifting from kind of uh, mainstream evangelical Core competencies, mainstream evangelical core competency to kind of the charismatic Pentecostal core competency. I'd be curious about your thoughts on that. There's a very small but lively group of people who were raised in charismatic or Pentecostal circles and then are now scholars of those movements. And so we always joke that, you know, don't hate, we're the best at it. We are the, the crown jewel of promotional mass media harnessing. We laugh about it because there's been just so many. The highs are highs and the lows are lows. You know, it's so for every, you know, well-loved charismatic who knows how to use media in a really savvy way, there's also a, an equally, if not more disliked version. So for every, I don't know, you know, Billy Graham wasn't charismatic, obviously, but there was like, you know, in that same era, Jim Baker was extraordinary. And Tammy Faye Baker, they were extraordinarily skilled mass media. They were really moguls and had kind of a spectacular fall from grace. So it's high risk and it'll be interesting to see what happens. But yeah, I think if nothing else, I think it shows that the style of doing praise and worship of the charismatics has become so widely adopted in traditional evangelical circles. To me, the very energized kind of content creator when it comes to worship music right now is Stephen Furtick's church, Elevation Church. They're creating a ton of stuff. And if you watch their services, that feels so Pentecostal to me. I think that he's still Southern Baptist, right? Yeah. But that guy's a killer Pentecostal preacher. When I watch him, I'm like, whoo, I do not know who trained you, but... I'm stunned, you know, so yeah, yeah I and think that blessing song is like straight up. Like I assumed that was a Hillsong song. Totally. You know? I, I watched that video several times because my friend and I, Erica Ramirez, we wrote an article about that in part about just how influential that crew is without anybody knowing it. But I was watching Carrie Job lead worship and she's doing, she's full Pentecostal on that, you know, running up and down on the stage. And I mean, it warmed my heart because it's what I grew up in. But yeah, that's in a Baptist church. That's amazing. That's really fascinating to think about how it's bled over so much. I think I would be remiss if I didn't just have a larger question about the actual aesthetic too, because we were talking about people being really good on these platforms. But in many ways, I feel like a lot of the worship cohort and Steve Furtick, I guess, can be included. 
in this as well. There's a particular look and aesthetic that they have with regards to the, how they dress, to regards to how they write captions on Instagram. It feels very much similar to a lot of the ways that Instagram influencers interact in general. What type of things does this suggest about how this community does view cultural engagement, Leah? You know, not to overemphasize this, but I think that evangelicals broadly defined um, to if you if we want to include charismatics and Pentecostals in that some people do some people don't I think that they've just always had a value and an understanding of how to harness mass media there's a really funny account of Ben Franklin kind of cynically describing what George Whitfield was doing like way back in the day with a little bit of admiration and a little bit of cynicism and so I think that there's just a, a long-standing tradition there there are certain talented people who do it better than others. Some people think that it's anointing from God, and some people think that they're just extra good at, at engaging with mass media. I mean, I look at that and I see like a long history. To me, on the Instagram influencer stage, there are two really outstanding religious groups, evangelicals and charismatics for sure, and also LDS influencers. So there's something about how this, I don't know if you know this, there's this whole world of women LDS blogger influencer types, and they have like millions and millions of followers. And maybe there's something about how they think of themselves when I think about these groups. And again, I grew up in one of them. So I don't mean this in a derogatory way. But there's a way of thinking about who you are and your Christian responsibility that's very outward facing. Like, how does this look to other people? Who I am as a person? How am I bearing witness? So I think there are just certain groups where they they innately understand that there's like, a media approach to it. And, you know, charismatics and Pentecostals, many historians, there's kind of an argument about it, but a lot of historians think of them as an American religious innovation. Certainly the LDS Church or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they are also an American innovation. And so when I see that, I think, I think there's something about how in the U.S., like we think about media and its power. So that's, that's such a long answer to a short, but very thoughtful question. Well, something that we can probably turn into an article later. I love it. I love <laughs> to it. Discuss even more. <laughs> Leah, you've had great things to help us think through this entire situation. So I really appreciate your comments and analysis in this. And I invite anyone who has additional feedback for us to pass it along to us by sending us an email. We are at podcast at christianitytoday.com. We are also on Twitter at CT Podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we do Slow to Speak, which is when we hear from our listeners. And today we have two tweets from folks who have listened to us and decided to share their thoughts on Twitter. The first is from someone who is identified on their Twitter handle as First Four Words. And this is what they tweeted us. It said, I am a CT subscriber and podcast listener, and I wanted to thank you for the work you put into the podcast. I enjoy the topics and insights. Serves as a reminder to me to always view things through Christ and his kingdom as opposed to my opinions and emotions. That was so succinct and nice praise, wasn't it, Ted? It really it really <laughs> was. Thank you. Yes, anonymous person on Twitter, yes, but we appreciate you. We appreciate it more than your first four words on there. But I do. Those first four words of the tweet were, I'm a CT subscriber. So I appreciate <laughs> those uh, those first four words as well. Good point. Good call. The next tweet I will read, it calls back to last week's precious moment, which is one I shared that I was really enjoying biking around on e-divvies. And I think I mentioned that normally when I am on Divi, which again is the name of the bike share network that we have in Chicago, that I don't always have my helmet. For the record, I often have my helmet when I am riding, not often, I always wear my helmet when I'm wearing using my own bike. But this tweet comes from Linda Marie Harrison. And she said, Hey, Morgan, I'm joining your presence on QTL. And that drive up pizza thing sounds awesome. But you've got to wear a helmet on any and every bike except stationary because brain injuries are forever. Wear your helmet. <laughs> to which Ted, I have to say, like, Amen, Linda. I feel like I have you to thank for that tweet, Ted. You do. I, I specifically told people to call you out and tell you to wear a helmet. So keep doing that until she does. All my podcast parents, I see. <laughs> All right. Um, people who would like to encourage us or exhort us, I guess, in this instance, to do the right thing, you can do that on Twitter, as seen here, at CT Podcast, or by sending us an email at podcast at Christianitytoday.com. 
Now is the time of show that we call Precious Moments, where everyone gets to share something that has recently brought them joy. Leah, do you want to go? I will say it's been rough around here in the Pacific Northwest for all the reasons that I just said. We just recently got out from a terrible cloud of wildfire smoke. So one of the things that I use to get through those very hard times is the show 90 Day Fiance. My friend (laughs) was watching it and texting me. And so then I thought, well, it's hard. It's like a 23 minute episode. And then I got, I was just hooked on it. So it is a guilty pleasure for sure. You know, guilty pleasures are what's getting us through these hard times, I think. <laughs> All right. Well, what, tell us what you actually like about the show, though. Like, you know. Oh, oh well, there's part of it that's a little bit like watching a, a car wreck in certain scenarios. Like, you know, I also watch The Bachelor, full disclosure. So there are so there's a part where it's like watching a relationship on national television that's just going to be like voyeuristic, watching people make questionable decisions. But then every now and then you get very real feeling human connection. And I'm super interested in, because I'm a religion scholar, the re- the people who are there and who are open about their faith and how, the role that it plays in their relationship. So again, a much longer answer to what you asked, but yes, I'm into it. I'm into it. That's great. All right, Ted, are you ready or should I go? No, I'm, I'm, I'm ready. I have already shared away my precious moment for the week, which was popping into the backyard this week and just, um, going nuts with the hymnal. You know, that sounds such much more pietistic. But so if this is your first podcast, know that I don't usually try to come up with like, I just, I went in my backyard and played hymns. That's, this is not a usual precious moment for me. (laughs) In this case, that has typically been my kind of nuclear option for when things are hard for me, spiritually, emotionally, in various ways is to play a bunch of hymns, ideally going camping, taking my guitar and playing through a hymnal until uh, playing until my fingers are too sore to play and then continuing on. This weekend, it was just me in the backyard. I didn't quite go through the whole hymnal, but it was great. As I've said to other people, I believe most when I sing, it was very restorative. So that that was my precious moment. I did play a board game this week with the family. It was Sushi Go Party. Most people, I think, may be familiar with that game. I think I've mentioned it before, but there's my board game of the week. I will keep it short this week. People can find me at Ted Olson. That's T-E-D-O-L-S-E-N on the Twitters. My precious moment is that over the weekend, we celebrated one of my best friend's birthdays by eating Oberweiss ice cream cake. Mm. That was really good. Nice. What flavor (laughs) of ice cream cake was it? Cookies and cream. It was just really good. I really liked it. And I now want, I'm not going to spend $30 on a cake for myself, but it was really good. Is Oberweiss only local? Like, do you know, do you know Oberweiss out in, out in the Oregon area? No, I need an education. I I think it's just an Illinois thing. It's a dairy out here that makes really good local, local ice cream. That sounds wonderful. I've been eating my feelings a lot over the last six months. So I'm, I like that. (laughs) I'm lactose intolerant. I also have been going nuts on ice cream. Oh, no. Help with, you know, you take those pills, you take the lactate pills, and, you know, you can enjoy these things. But Better living through science, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's, yeah, there's a precious moment, too. Ice cream could be our precious moment every week. So thank you for that reminder. Uh, <laughs> wow. No problem. All right, people can find me on Twitter. I'm at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That's it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode. And thank you, everyone, who continues to give us their thoughts and feedback about the show. And you can do so by going to podcast at christianitytoday.com. This episode of Quick to Listen is produced by myself and Matt Lindor. The transcript is done by Boone Ashola, and the music is done by Sweeps. And you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you all next week.